Amato's fifth quarter is partnered with the Inner Sanctum. The Inner Sanctum, founded in 2020, is the new ball game in sports journalism, which aims to take you behind the closed doors of sporting clubs around the country in an effort to tell the stories of those on the field. Visit the Inner Sanctum at www.theinnersanctum.com.au as well as following them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. The Inner Sanctum, unique interviews, unique content for you. This is Travis Dodds. This is Greg Oddy. This is Tyson Edwards. This is Brett Maher. This is Dale Kicker. This is Eugene Brickman. This is Kevin Brooks. And you're listening to Amato's Fifth Quarter. What's up and welcome to episode 9 of Amato's 5th Quarter. I'm your host Dan and in the blink of an eye we're almost in double digits. I can't wait. Next episode, ooh, the big one, 10. But hey, let's just put the foot on the brakes because at the moment, episode 9 and well, let's enjoy it because episode 9 is a big one. It's Kevin Brooks. Kevin Brooks, KB, is my special guest today. An absolute legend of the Adelaide 36ers. But the thing that is the most special, I guess, about this episode is KB is my first guest who is a former NBA player. Yes, KB played in the NBA. He was a a round one draft pick, taken at pick 18 back in 1991 with the Milwaukee Bucks. And literally half an hour later was traded to the Denver Nuggets where he played over 120 games in the greatest league in the world. He played with Dikembe Mutombo, and he played against the likes of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Dennis Rodman. He played finals in the NBA as well. I I asked him a million and one questions about the NBA because, of course, as we know, as good as the NBA is and as much as we love it, 
the NBA always has been and always will be the greatest standard of basketball in the world. And KB was a part of it in those glory days in the 90s. He played, as I said, with the Denver Nuggets for three seasons or four seasons, actually. And then, of course, he came to Australia, a country that he did not know much about at all. He played with the Adelaide 36ers. He played with the Sydney Kings and, of course, as well as the Hunter Pirates, who are no longer in the league anymore. Looking at what he achieved here in Australia in the NBL, 1998 to 2004, he played 158 games in the NBL, amassing 2,848 points, 1,005 rebounds, 262 assists. He is a two-time NBL champion, was a part of that Adelaide 36ers 1998 and 1999 back-to-back championships under Phil Smythe, and of course was the grand final MVP, the Larry Singstock medalist, in 1998, as well as being an all-NBL first-teamer in 1999 as well. Now, not only was he a legend in the NBL, not only did he play over 120 games in the NBA, but he is honestly a really genuine guy to talk to. I really enjoy talking to him. I really just love listening to him talk about how passionate he is about basketball and his career and and everything he's doing now with his Brooks Basketball and his academy, it's really, really inspiring to listen to. So I'm sure you'll hear how sincere and how genuine KB is as a person. And, you know, it's great to be a good player, but to be a good person on top of it just tops it off for me. I mean, as we know, not just in sport, but in life in general, sometimes things don't always go to plan. And there are some things that KB does discuss that probably he looks back on with not the fondest of memories. Some of those include... Uh, the last season where he was, of course, the assistant coach at the Adelaide 36ers and some of the issues that were going on, not so much on the court, but more so off the court and, and with Joey Wright and kind of being told certain things that you know would happen this year that didn't end up happening that were unfortunate. He does go into that a little bit and the departure of Joey Wright, as well as talking about Mitch Creek's departure from the Adelaide 36ers and, and some of the things that went on there and, and why he feels very sad about Mitch Creek no longer being at the 36ers and and some of the reasons why you know Mitch Creek made that decision to leave. So he does go into that as well. So this is a jam-packed episode and I really hope you guys enjoy it. I'm really really keen to to get into this episode. Let's bring him on from the Denver Nuggets, from the Adelaide 36ers, from the Sydney Kings and from the Hunter Pirates. It's Kevin Brooks about to come on the ground. They blasted out to a 16 to 2 lead. Kevin Brooks showing some moves. Tangled up and gets rid of it to Williams. Owen Brooks leans back, fires and hits. Kevin Brooks. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter, and today we got a very special guest on. It's a championship player of the NBL, Kevin Brooks. KB, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem, Dan. Good to be here, man. So, KB, what have you been up to in the last couple of years now? You're no longer with the 36ers, or the last year, really. How's the last year treated you, and, and what have you been up to since you since you left the Sixers? Yeah, look, uh, the transition from the last seven years with the 36ers as an assistant coach is, is actually went pretty, pretty smoothly, Dan. I started my Brooks Basketball Services and Consultancy business about uh, almost four years ago, so it was a bit of a side hustle for me. And uh, not a side hustle, it's the main hustle. So we um, we offer one-on-one coaching, two-player coaching, small groups, weekly academies, 
shooting clinics, holiday camps and clinics. Um, we offer quite a an array of services as well as uh, you know coaching clinics and video and uh, scouting analysis. Uh, all these skills I've developed over uh, quite a, a long time of, of playing and coaching basketball. So uh, the business is, is going well, especially in the school holidays. Man, we've been busy and uh, it's been a blessing. So basically you've come from being an aspiring player to a professional player to a coach and now a skill developer. You can't stay out of basketball, can you? Well, you know what, Dan? I'm trying to stay in my own lane, man. I'm trying to stick with what I what I know and what I do well. I think I've been been very uh, been very blessed to be able to play the game, coach the game, and then now I'm teaching the game different aspect as far as being a skill developer, but also being a business owner. And now we, we're turning that business into a company soon as well. So um, I feel quite quite blessed, man, that. Uh, I'm able to continue to make a living with this skill set I've developed over the last uh, probably 30 years or so. So uh, things are well. There's a lot of kids out there. There's a lot of work. If you want to go and get it, it's out there. And uh, we're trying to do it the right way, trying to provide a service to the community and uh, do it at a, at a really good value as well. Uh, awesome. Absolutely beautifully said. What about if we take you back to your early days, KB? So you're originally from the, the country town of White Castle, Louisiana. What are your memories from, from there? And where did your love of basketball originate from? Well, it started there in White Castle, man. We're, we're a small town in Louisiana, right alongside the Mississippi River. Probably less than 1,500 people. Um, and uh, sports was, was big then, you know, football. Uh, basketball were the main ones. There was some baseball there as well, some softball, but uh, basketball and football are the big ones. And for a small town, we've actually had some uh, professional players come out of there for our population. You know, Church Favron played in the NFL about 12, 15 years. Mac Bowden played in the combination of the old USFL for a number of years. Uh, we had a couple guys that played some good college ball and, and maybe had a couple of stint in the, in the pros and maybe a training camp or so, Joe Jones, and all those playground heroes that every neighborhood has in one sport or another. You know, Joe the Pro and Spider-Man and, you know, uh, Iceman and the Old Bear Brothers, all these, all these names and nicknames that uh, we all have. I know Rucker Park in New York, they, they probably one of the biggest ones on the scene. Venice Beach over in California from uh, the old movie White Man Can't Jump, you know, all of the, <laughs> the playing basketball on the, next to the, uh, to the ocean there and all the trash talking. So I grew up in that environment. Uh, it was good, man, because it was a small town and, and back then the whole town raised you. So uh, when I went to school, man, I got to high school. It was year seven, and I was strutting my stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in the bigs now. And all of a sudden, you go to your classroom, and your teachers have taught your mom. They've taught your uncles. They've taught your, um, <laughs> your aunties. Everyone knows so everyone. You know right away that you're not about to get away with anything, man. They know who you are. I mean, you know, you go to a school where the teachers taught your mom. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy even just to say that right now because it's probably unheard of. But in that small town, it was a pretty tight-knit community. 
and everybody kind of looked out to everyone and uh, so much has changed now but that's what it was like you know it was I, I enjoy that I miss it I wish my boys could kind of experience that a little bit the world has changed so much now uh, I think there's a few small towns like that throughout the world but uh, it was I think it was a pretty special upbringing Sounds absolutely awesome to live in that sort of, or grow up in that sort of environment. It was, man. It, it, it just a, you don't appreciate it when you're growing up because you think, oh man, it's it's so slow, it's boring. I want to get to the big cities, but eventually, when you get there and you get older, and uh, you know, you start to mature a bit. You know, maybe you get married, you start your own family, you start to look back on your own upbringing and how you realize, you know what, it wasn't that bad at all actually it was pretty doggone good and uh, I was I was fortunate to, to to play the game of basketball but I wasn't good at it whatsoever man and I was young and I was very awkward and, and uncouth and um, you know my legs go one way and, and my body go the other <laughs> but I did enjoy the game even though I wasn't good at it I played mostly because everyone said you're so tall you should play I was just a regular kid. I played a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I loved to go fishing, um, and um, so I went out for the team, and I and I and I tried out for it. And I made the team not because I was good, but because I was tall. And um, you know, I just kind of enjoyed it. And I stuck with it. Um, I had some rough moments, you know, because I was so tall. I ended up playing with the older boys a lot. And the older boys used to, I learned a lot from them. I learned a lot from them, man. Uh, they used to beat me up and I'd go home crying from the basketball court at least, you know, once or twice a week. But I'd get back out there the next day and it, it just ended up paying off for me. I think if you if you play with guys that are a bit sort of older and better than you, that probably makes you better. It absolutely does. They teach you how to play the game. They, they toughen you up. And uh, back on those courts, you know, we had uh, we had uptown and back of town. So it was a little court back of town. There was a court uptown, and there was one court back town, two courts uptown. But the courts were packed. So when you played, you know, winners stay on, losers get off. You lose a game, man. It, it could be hours so before you get back on the court. So those games were pretty fierce, man. And if you get chosen. You know, you, you're done all right, and you got to get out there, and you got to get it done. So, you know, for a while, I was, early on, I was chosen because I was tall, but I wasn't very good, so I wasn't chosen <laughs> after that. I wasn't chosen after that very much, but I didn't like not being good. And so I would just, after school, I had homework, and I was on the court for hours, man. And uh, eventually... I started getting a bit of a feel for the game, and uh, I, I I had some good coaching when I was young, uh, in seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, on up through high school, and I kept growing. And then all of a sudden, I just took off. So when was it? When was the moment when you realized you were good enough to actually play professional basketball? Well, look, at that moment definitely wasn't in high school for me, Dan. It was that was in college. Um, I remember year 10, a letter came from LSU, LSU, Louisiana State University. It's a big university in Louisiana. Coach by the name of Dale Brown was there, and I grew up watching them and wanting to play for that school. And they had some really good players there. 
Actually, Al Green here, Al Green who played for the Western 36ers and the 36ers, he was a player there for a little while before he transferred. But they had some talent on that team, and I wanted to be a part of it. And a letter, I think they called it maybe just like a, a letter of interest from the school came for me, and my coach gave it to me, my high school coach gave it to me. And I was so excited, man. He gave me that letter right after school in, and I was only living about probably a couple of blocks away from the school. I don't think my feet touched the ground on the way home. <laughs> I was so excited, so excited, man. I just ran so fast home to show my, my grandmother, my mom, and, and my family, and I was just, man, it was an awesome feeling. But so then it was just all about the letters start coming in from all kind of universities and colleges all over America. And then from there, I went to, I ended up making a choice. I went to University of Southwestern Louisiana. They called the University of Louisiana now. They changed the name. The Raging Cajuns. And I didn't realize that I had the potential to be a pro probably until maybe by year 11. Well, I wouldn't say year 11, my junior year, my third year in college. That's when, um, I started having agents approaching me to sign with them. Uh, my name was being uh, written in certain magazines and stuff as a, as a future prospect. So that's when I started to get a little bit of this might be a possibility. And then with my senior year, I, I knew that I, I might have a chance of getting drafted. So, yeah, and it's interesting you, you mentioned our Green as well because I've had him on the show before. He was absolutely fantastic. But this... This journey leads you to being selected at pick 18 of the first round of the 1991 NBA draft by Milwaukee. Do you actually remember that night you got drafted when you officially became an NBA player? With the 18th pick of the 1991 NBA draft, the Milwaukee Bucks select Kevin Brooks from Southwest Louisiana. Yeah, I was in Houston, Texas, in the hood, man, Fifth Ward. Uh, my mom was living there. Uh, I had some buddies, Chris Gatling, uh, was one, I don't know, maybe Big Smooth, Victor Alexander, Sean Vandiver, uh, a few of these guys was asking me to come up to New York, you know, Larry Johnson, where he knew LJ knew he was going to be a high pick at that time, and they was in New York, and they had some big parties before the draft, and I was like, man, look, I don't, I don't know where I'm going to get drafted. And I know we probably remember a few guys from back in the day in drafts who didn't get drafted. So you're sitting there on TV with your nice suit on and you don't get drafted and the whole world's watching. So I didn't want to be that guy. <laughs> so I decided to uh, go to drive up to Houston, Texas and, and watch the draft with my mom and my girlfriend at that time. And uh, the local TV station from Lafayette, Louisiana, drove up with us. And... Uh, it was an exciting day, you know, just anticipation of the draft and you're not quite sure what's gonna happen, but I signed with an agent, Bill Strickland. He was with ProServe. ProServe was the company that uh, had Bill uh, David Falk. David was the number one agent. He had Michael Jordan. And uh, my agent, Bill Strickland, had a lot of Georgetown guys. He had a, a Georgetown connection there and that whole firm had a Georgetown connection. And we're talking about Patrick Ewing and Reggie Williams, David Wingate, the Kimmy Matumbo. We talked about that Georgetown connection, Alonzo Morning. So I wanted to go with, 
I was okay being a little fish in a big pond as opposed to being a big fish in a little pond. So just having that country boy mentality, I was like, look, I want to sign with a company that can get things done. They know the, they know the NBA uh, hierarchy. And, and so I signed with ProServe, and that was that was a blessing as well. But it, it, my agent was in New York, so I, I didn't need to be there. That was fine with me. Uh, he said, look, I'll probably know uh, where you're going to go before it's announced. So as soon as I hear anything, I give you a call. So, you know, we just did, we're chilling, we're watching the NBA uh, draft, man. It's exciting, you know. All of a sudden, you know, LJ goes number one, and I can't, I can't remember two and three after that. I think the Kimbe might have went four or five, which the Kimbe was mad because he didn't go number one. So <laughs> every time we played LJ, Grandmama, and played the Hornets, man, he tried to block every shot to build it because he said they should have picked me number one. Oh, that's awesome. That, that was awesome. That was always great robbery for him. But the phone rang, man. The phone rang. It was my agent. He said, hey, you're, uh, you're about to get drafted to the Washington Bullets at number 19. And so uh, I was so excited, man. I mean, I was just like, this is awesome. Because before that, Dan, you know, you go and work out for certain teams, so I worked out for Chicago, I worked out for Milwaukee, I worked out for Atlanta Hawks. Uh, I didn't work out for the Boston Celtics, but I went over there and had an interview. And so sometimes you can have a feel for things, right? But there's so much willing and dealing on draft day, man. You just don't know what's going to happen. So when he said Washington, I didn't work out for Washington. I was like, shit, I, I didn't work out for them. So, okay, but you, you just never know. So while I'm on the phone talking to him about this, my mom and my girlfriend all of a sudden start to yell and scream and jumping up and down. And lo and behold, I was drafted 18th to the Milwaukee Bucks. So my agent's on the phone. He looks up at the big screen in New York. He's like, oh, man, yeah, you just got drafted. He's like, congratulations, yada, yada, yada. So it was it was just a great moment for my family and myself you know of course my agent and, and that firm and it was awesome man it was just man i was i was so happy and and still yet so nervous at the same time about you know what's to come because it was just foreign foreign territory for me no one that i really do closely had been and done that before that's awesome that's an awesome story but you're immediately traded to the Denver Nuggets. How does that work? You, you just you get drafted and then all of a sudden you traded to a different club. That's a bit foreign here in Australia. Yeah, it would be. And look, it was foreign to me. To me also, Dan. I was very disappointed. I was I, I was a little bit sad about it. My agent called me back, and he said, "You know, you've been you've been traded because I saw it on TV. Either the commentators mentioned it." Or it was in like the little, you know, the little writing goes across the screen. And I was like, oh, it just took the wind out of my sails, man, because I didn't understand it. So he called me and I, I used to call him Big Dad. I said, Big Daddy, what's going on, man? What's, what's up? He said, look, I don't quite know everything yet. You have been traded from Milwaukee to Denver, but you are 18 pick in the draft. You're going to be paid as an 18 pick in the draft. No matter what happens, that'll never change. So... You're, you're, in, you're still in the NBA, and uh, and that really just settled me down. It's what I needed to hear. Uh, I didn't quite understand it. I knew I walked, I worked out for Milwaukee, and I had a really good workout for him. Uh, 
George Ankles was there. He was the center for UNLV on that really good running Rebels team. There was a few guys in that draft that year. Uh, Larry Johnson, I think. Greg Anthony was there, and even Anderson Hunt. So it was like five guys in that draft that year. But I worked out with him, and I had a really good workout for Milwaukee. They needed a small forward. So when they drafted me, it made sense. But uh, when they traded me, boy, I was I was lost. And I didn't work out for Denver, so I didn't know what the heck was going on, man. So how long were you a listed Milwaukee player? I would say probably about... Uh, you know, it, it would have been maybe 15 minutes to wow. probably 15 to 30 minutes because uh, what I ended up finding out is that uh, obviously it was meant to be that way. It was a three-way trade between the Milwaukee Bucks, the Denver Nuggets, and the Atlanta Hawks. Yeah, because so, they have all sides covered, basically. They, they yeah, strategize. Yeah, that's right. They worked out a deal. If I was still around by then... Then Milwaukee would draft me for Denver. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly how it went, but I think Atlanta Hawks drafted Anthony Avent from Seton Hall. They drafted him for Milwaukee. And Denver sent Blair Rasmussen, I think was a big center. They sent him to Atlanta. And so that's the way it was meant to be. Uh, my agent and myself didn't know anything about it. We found out about it on draft day, and uh, overall, it was a bit nerve-wracking, but, you know, I was still in the NBA, so I was I was still pretty happy. Absolutely, so you should be. But 126 games for the Denver Nuggets over three seasons, and as you said, you played with Dikembe Mutombo. Can you just give me just a bit of an insight into what it was like to share a locker room with, with one of the greats? Simpkins, and a great block by Mutombo! Jim Jackson... Gives us the inches, but Dikembe Mutombo has. Dikembe said, no, not in my house. Mutombo goes baseline and throws it down. John Kemp trying to do a one-on-one block. Uh, Dikembe reloads it. He knew Dikembe was there. Well, Dikembe was a great guy, man. You know, he was um, a funny guy, very smart. Spoke about seven different languages. Most of those were, were African, and English was the worst one. <laughs> his oh, really? And we used to give him grief about his... His English all the time, man. But he was a great guy, and he, he still is. I think he's a diplomat now, representing his country. He's done a tremendous job, had a tremendous career. But um, you know, and he was at he was in training, blocking shots and talking trash, man. So he 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 stretched you a little bit when you went down there. You know, he was there, and you had to you had to create shots. You had to get that thing up high and quick. You know. The NBA got these guys who are long and tall. And even the smaller guys can be strong and very athletic. So you have to have different shots. And I had, I was lucky enough because you have a lot of older players who sometimes can take you under the wing and they'll teach you what the NBA is about. And they'll teach you how to survive and how to prolong your career. I was blessed to get three years and I'm very grateful for it. My goal was to get 10 years, uh, but that didn't happen. But tell you what the locker room was awesome you know Reggie Williams was from Georgetown as well so him and Dikembe had a great connection a great relationship and he was one of my favorite players there because he he would school me a lot on, on what I needed to do and not do and uh the great Walter Davis I don't know if you remember him Dan he was a older player but played about 15 16 years uh Cadillac Anderson from Houston Winston Garland 
Uh, Chris Jackson, who changed his name to Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, was there. So we, we had a, a bit of experience and we had a, a lot of youth there, but it was it was just was a fantasy world of NBA. Everything was just first class. It was it was a heck of a ride, man. Something that you, you don't want to end, but when it does and you kinda of come down to earth a bit, it just makes you appreciate that opportunity even more. I made some good lifelong friends and made a little bit of cash and, and, and uh done some things for my family. Uh, then and still now, so it, it's it was awesome, man. It really was. Yeah, I was going to ask you what is. I mean, obviously, it is a little bit different now to what it was back then. But can you give some of the listeners a bit of an insight into what life is like as an NBA player? Well, I mean, you know, for me, I got down there to Denver, and you know, you, you got to find a place to live, obviously. So, you know, you get there, you get your vehicle. All of a sudden, you got your trainings. Uh, you get there to your trainings before everything starts and you know you're working out you're doing your weights you're doing your conditioning and you're playing in the day so you might have uh, two or three little sessions throughout the day and then you're done you got a lot of free time whatnot but as the season comes closer we get ready for training camp training camp now Denver is already called a mile high city because it's whatever mile is 5,000 whatever whatever feet above sea level so the air is thinner now, when you get in shape, it's beautiful, but when you're trying to get in shape, it's horrible. Uh, you're nauseated, you, you look, you, you're throwing up everything. Your head's spinning because you, you can't get enough air. And um, eventually you get used to it. But we trained at Colorado Springs, and I want to say that's where the Air Force is or something. So we went to train on their facilities there. And... Uh, Training camp was no joke, man. My first year, we trained twice a day for like two weeks. It was a beast, man. Um, I made it through that training camp. I felt that I could do anything when I made it through that training camp. Paul Wesley was our coach. He came from Loyola, Vermont, running gun. The late Hank Gazers, Bo Kimball, they ran. And so we ran. And I would come. We have a morning training, probably start about 9 We'll go until about 11, 30, 11, have lunch, and then we'll come back for that evening session probably at about 4 o'clock and go another two to three hours. I would be so tired from that freight, that first training after a couple of days, I wouldn't even take the tape off my ankles, man. I would just go there and fall asleep in the bed and just sleep and then get back up and go back to training sometimes I would eat sometimes I wouldn't I would be so tired uh, after like three days of that four days of that then it, it, it was a it was a grind man and uh, you you learn so much about yourself in those moments because coming from a small town I got the whole town that I feel like I'm carrying on my shoulders a little bit uh, because you just you, you you don't want to disappoint your family, you don't want to disappoint your hometown and your school, and you got so many friends in college watching, um, and you want to represent yourself well. So you know once once I eventually got through that, then boy I tell you we travel. You go on sweeps. So if you go to New York, you might play the Knicks, and you might play the Nets at that time, and then you might play. Um, Philadelphia, you might go, you might have three games in seven, eight days, you might go on that 
on that trip, boom, then you come back. And back then it was $100 a day for meals. So you got your meal money cash and you can spend that on, you know, on your bills. Now I was still coming out of college. So I was at McDonald's, man. I was at Taco <laughs> Bell. I was, you know, at Burger King and I'd take the rest of the money and pocket it. But when you're around the older players, older players are, are just awesome, man. They, they say, look, young fella, you, you can't, I know you're young now and you can just run and jump all day, but eventually you want to create some good habits to prolong your career. So you, you need to start eating better. So Walter Davis was the person who took me on his wing and I would go out to him with restaurants and, and we'll have a good solid meal, you know, your, your carbs and your meat and your vegetables. And he taught me how to eat better and to, to get my rest before games, you know, and have a routine. Uh, and and that's what I that's what I would do. But we flew commercial the first two years in the NBA, so we was in the airport with everyone else, you know, and uh, which was still awesome, you know, signing autographs and different things like that. But in our third season, the team uh, leased the airplane and we had our own jet, and it just went to another level, Dan. It that's amazing. Level. That's... It was just awesome, man. You had your own meals and your own flight attendants. We flew right to the thing, and we flew off to a separate hangar. The bus came to the to the plane. You went from the plane to the bus, straight to your to your uh, hotel, and up to your rooms, man. And the hotels were all five star hotels, man. It was awesome. So you literally just live in the high life. High life. That's amazing. High life. I mean, as a rookie, you got rookie duties. You know, we had to sing songs in front of veterans. Uh, I had to bring donuts and orange juice to trainings. Uh, I had to pick up some of the, the boys' dirty clothes and take it to the trainer. Um, I had to run certain little errands as a rookie, uh, which I didn't mind doing. And Mark Macon was the other rookie from Temple, and Dikembe was a, a rookie. As he said, a Wookiee, because his English was terrible. He always called himself a Wookiee. I'm not a Wookiee. I'm, I'm a not a Wookiee. It was like, well, Dikembe probably was the oldest rookie in NBA history. He must have been about, I don't know, 25, 26, but he hated to do the rookie duties. And, we, the boys used to have a lot of fun with him doing it. He hated it. But I was so happy to be there, man. I'd I done whatever I was told to do, Dan. It wasn't a problem. Yeah, I know. It's that time again. Quarter time here in A5Q. And that means going back to last week where I got to sit down and have a really good chat with former A-League goalkeeper, one of the greatest, if not the greatest goalkeeper ever in the league, Eugene Galekovic, who, of course, played for Melbourne City, Melbourne Victory, Adelaide United, and the Australian national team, won two championships in the A-League as well as a record four-time goalkeeper of the year. If you missed that chat, definitely go back and listen to it, but here's a little snippet of it. Everything, you know, before that game was, you know, all those little things kind of were going against us. We, I think we had an A-League game um, before that game, and uh, they, they flew... Flew to Adelaide in a private jet uh, really early, maybe four or five days before the game, really fresh. Um, the momentum just got us through that game, and um, you know the, we we win three 0 at home. Um, and going over there, it's you know you don't feel safe three 0 uh, especially going to a country like Wooden Core, uh, a long flight. I think it took over thirty hours to get there, and we're yeah. in about you know transiting transiting in four different countries and when we got there I remember it just being really hostile. Um, the crowd was on top of us, um, never stopped every time the ball went out. Um, you know, they just put the ball back in straight away. Um, they, they just got the game moving really quick, put us under a lot of pressure and um, this 
realistic for us was we didn't really concede in the first half, so it was nil-nil at half-time and they scored really late to really, you know, try to you know, get three goals back. So um, that's what really took the pressure off us. If you like the sound of that, then definitely go back and listen to the episode in full. It was a really good chat with Huge. But until then, let's get back to Kevin Brooks. The 1994 playoffs, one of the great underdog stories under coach Dan Issel. You finish eighth in the Western Conference and you have to play Seattle. You beat them 3-2 in the series and become the first eighth place team to defeat first place. How did how did that team do that? Able to survive a game five against the West, another Utah, and then they survived game seven against Houston, both at home. Gary Payton, seconds, Perkins, batted back out, McMillan, another three, way short. That's it. Macombo embraces the ball in the unlikely upset, one of the great upsets in NBA playoff history. It was just, you know, some moves were made by the club, you know, we, we traded a few guys away. I did they, they done whatever they, they felt like they needed to do. The goal was to build a team around the Kimbe. The Kimbe was the foundation. He was defensive minded. He blocked the shots. We want to put pressure on the ball and channel them down at the Kimbe, and they got to deal with the big fella. So uh, we were a very young team. Guys like Brian Stitt and Lafonso Ellis, uh, Rodney Rogers, Darnell Ming. You know, my Sixers teammate, he was drafted that, that, that final season with Rodney Rogers. And uh, Robert Pack was brought in, I think, from Portland. We still had Chris Jackson while Mike moved in. And we kind of, with Reggie, Reggie Lewis was there with a couple of older guys. Brought in uh, Brian Williams, Bison Daly, changed his name. Unfortunately, he passed away here some time ago. I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but he was a great guy. And we just kind of jailed, man. I think throughout the season, we were very competitive at home. And then on the road, we weren't very good, which is characteristic of a young team. You know, a young team play well when they play against a good team. And, you know, when you play against a team on your level, then you kind of play a bit average. You fluctuate. And that's, that's what young teams do. But we built up a nice little confidence at home. So we were tough. And when we got in those playoffs, Seattle had the best... They had the best record in the league. Man, they had a squad over there. They had the glove, Gary Payton. They had Rain Man, Sean Kemp. They had uh, Nate McMillan was there. Kendall Gill was there. I mean, they had a nice squad, man. So we didn't think we was going to beat them, Dan. But, you know, we, 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 we were just happy to make the playoffs. Um, and so we went up against Seattle. We was like, well, no one expects us to win. We just need to go out there and enjoy the moment. This is why this is this was Dad's message. You, this is why you play the game, you know, for moments like this. You know, Oscar Robertson, the big old said, you, you know, you make your name in the, in the regular season, but you make your fame in the playoffs. And so, you know, we we end up doing just that and making history uh, by beating them uh, the way that we did. It was uh, it was a moment you'll never forget. The Kimbe had an unbelievable series along with some of the other guys there. And we shocked the world. You know, we, we, we shocked the world. We were the first eight seed to be the number one seed. I think the Knicks surpassed us some years later. But they became uh, the second, the first team to, I think the second team to do it. And at the same time, the first team 
eighth-seeded team to go all the way to the NBA Finals. So they end up kind of jumping ahead of us. But uh, it didn't take anything away from our moment. Yeah, because you, you ended up taking Utah all the way to seven games, but obviously they ended up beating you. Yeah, they did in seven games. And once again, you know, we, we lost in Utah. But, boy, we got back to old McNichols Arena, boy. And then our fans were there. We, we, we just were a different team with that home support, that home cooking, man. Uh, they had Carl Malone, John Stockton, the legendary coach Jerry Sloan over there. Uh, we played them. They were in our division, so we played them a lot. We knew them very well. They knew us. Stockton was tough, hard-nosed, smart as he could be. And, you know, the mailman was the mailman. He delivered, man. He talked trash the whole way. So, you know, they had some other guys over there. Uh, Horny, Jeff Hornacek, I think he's the NBA coach now. At least he was. And he, he, he would shoot the lights out. And they had the other pieces there. Very well coached by John, Jerry Sloan. But we, uh, our guys at that time were playing with a lot of confidence. Alfonso Ellis, was, but that full spot was tough. The problem with him is that Carl Malone was his idol. So it was very difficult for him to play against Carl Malone the way he played against other power forwards in the league. But lucky enough for us, we had the regular season for him to go through that and deal with that. And by the time we got to the finals, he was he was able to, to compete against Carl a lot better there. And uh, we had a really good chance. I remember that game. We had a good chance of, of going to the next round there. We had them on the ropes. The pressure was squarely on them. And I think the game wasn't decided until maybe the fourth quarter there where, you know, the, the tempo changed a little bit and a few possessions didn't really go the way we wanted them to go. And in the NBA, that's all it takes. And they end up, they end up toppling, uh, toppling us. But we taking them to seven games was a huge effort. And uh, when, we, when we flew back into Denver, man, we had a few thousand people out there waiting for us. And, man, we felt like champions, man. We, we, <laughs> we felt like champions, and We had a great ride. And... Uh, it's something that uh, has bonded us as, as uh, teammates. And I think they celebrated it a few years ago by inviting most of the players back down there. I wasn't able to go because I was over here. But they, I think the 20-year anniversary or TV anniversary, whatever it was, 20. Yeah, 20 was celebrated. Uh, and um, they they had all the players there and it, it was a good night. I think Donnell went there and he said it was a good night. So do you still keep in contact with some of your NBA friends? Well, not not now. I mean, Darnell was the main guy. Rodney Rogers, I was for a while. Uh, Mark Macon every now and then. I was a little bit for Dikembe. I've lost track of him. Uh, Lafonso Ellis, I think, is still doing some commentating for college. Uh, I, I reached out. I reconnected with Brian Stitt. Brian is a wonderful guy. He played about 15 years in the NBA. He's a college coach now. He might be coming out to Australia soon, actually. But I reconnected with him over WhatsApp about uh, six months ago. It was great to, to see him. He sees the King Bay. He sees some of the guys a little bit more often. So I find out how the guy is doing through him. Uh, Chris Jackson was back playing in that three-on-three, that, that tournament, that ice cube together along with a few other people so he was competing in that with Josh Childress and a few other guys so uh, if, if I'm not in contact with as many of them but one of the other guys is and we all kind of keep track of each other 
that way, which is the same way I keep track of my college teammates and our 36 teammates because we all still very close as well. Yeah, nice. So I think you had another season there in the NBA and then your NBA stint comes to an end. You spend a little bit of time in Europe before you came to Australia in 1998. Two-part question. How did your NBA stint come to an end? And secondly, after you'd been in Europe, when you came to Australia, did you know anything about the NBL prior to coming to Australia or just in general, did you know anything about Australia at all? One of the key signings that the Sixers had was Daniel Mee, who was an import with the Canberra Cannons, and prior to that had played for the Denver Nuggets in the NBA. He had a close friend by the name of Kevin Brooks, and when the Sixers were kicking around ideas for who their second import would be, Daniel just sort of suggested, maybe you should follow this guy up, see what you think. We didn't actually know at the time that Daniel and KB had played together at Denver in the NBA. He was definitely looking forward to bringing his flashy NBA style to the NBL. A six foot nine jump shooter, you know, played three years in the NBA. Things he did in games, and you'd go, you're not supposed to be able to do that. I, I, I still think he was one of the best players to ever come out here. To the NBA, you know, I had a three-year deal. I played for three years. My contract was up. Denver didn't renew my contract. They didn't re-sign me, so I became a free agent. I had a contract from the Los Angeles Clippers that was offered to me, and I was given a week to sign it. Now, the Clippers weren't a very good team back then, but I think it was a bit of ego involved that I still have their contract back home in America right now. Really? I did not... I did not sign that contract, Dan. That would have put me right back in the NBA for my fourth year. And I had uh, quite a bit of interest. I played in some summer league uh, competitions. I think I played with the Cleveland Cavaliers, with Coach Mike Fratello. And I had a workout for the Los Angeles Clippers. That was probably, that could have been, I can't remember, I think that might have been after the contract was offered and I didn't sign it so the deadline was up on that I had some interest from the Orlando Magic they had invited me to go to their training camp uh, but I didn't go to that so for me at that time the Clippers were such a bad team I didn't want to go there I thought they were just such disarray and I felt that I had some interest from some other teams through my agent so I thought I'd go that way but it didn't work out for me and I ended up going to Europe. Uh, I actually went to the CBA, which was a development league. Now it's the G League. It was a CBA back then and played almost a year there with a couple of different teams. And I was supposed to get called up to the Philadelphia 76ers with John Lucas. But by the time he decided to call me up, I decided to get out of that league and head to Europe and I went to France. And that was a wonderful experience as well. Um, and from there, man, I just played in different countries. I played Brazil twice, Argentina twice. I played in Sweden. I went out to Poland, played New Zealand, of course, you know, Europe. And, um, you know, it was just wonderful. And then, of course, that led me here to um, Australia in 1998. So I wanted very badly to get back to the NBA. But there was a time there when I lost a bit of confidence and I needed to uh, regain my confidence and get my skills back up to a level where I can go into a training camp and compete and play on the level that I need to play on. So uh, I, I had a couple opportunities there that I didn't take advantage of early. And then later on, 
some of those opportunities just were more and more difficult to get. So, Darnell, to ask your second question, uh, Darnell had played for the Cameron Cannons. I didn't know anything about Australia. All I knew was Crocodile Dundee, bro. That's all <laughs> I knew. I thought you'd say something like that or Kangaroos. Yeah, we, we just loved that movie, man. That's, that's all I knew about oh. Australia. I didn't know they had a league. I didn't know how far that bloody flight was. I didn't know anything. But my teammate, my former teammate, Darnell, he, uh, we had the same agent. He played for the Cameron Cannons over there with Rob Rose. They played very well. Then Phil Spike, in his first year as a coach, brought Darnell over. And he needed another player. Darnell told him about me. And that's how I ended up getting over here. Um, I, uh, Phil was looking at a couple of players. And, you know, I felt because of my NBA resume and whatnot, I would get, uh, get the job. No, I have a good chance at it. But Phil made us work out. He organized a workout with a Clippers assistant coach at UCLA. And I remember Kiki Vandeway, the legendary Kiki Vandeway, was there doing a workout with a guy that I know, actually. We had to work out. I wasn't very happy about that day, and I didn't feel like I had to work out for the job. But well, you're NBA-caliber player. Yeah, to give Phil credit, though, he stuck to his guns. And I worked out. I was working out with or against another good player named Jeff Webster, played with the Oklahoma Sooners. Ended up playing in Australia probably three, four years later on, actually. Uh, I don't know if it was from Brisbane or somewhere, but he ended up getting out here. But I ended up beating Jeff out for the job, and, and that's how I ended up being the 36. I arrived here in January of 1998. So you said you were offered a contract from the Clippers. Why yes. is it you didn't sign that? What was the reason for that? You know how many times I've asked myself that, Dan? You know how many times I said, what in the world were you thinking? I remember coming back from overseas a couple of times and I go in my little safe and I open up my safe and I kind of forgot about it. I kept that contract there as a reminder. I kept it as a reminder to myself of, you know, you know, kind of like what, what if or what could have been. And just to make sure that I, I, I try to think things through and I don't allow ego or emotion to make decisions for me. So, I remember going back from, from some trip and, and looking for something and boom, that oh man, I forgot about this. And you sit up there and you hold that NBA contract in your hands and you look at it and then I try to I try to go back and say, okay, what the hell was I thinking? Why did I sign this contract? It would have given me another year in the NBA. That would have been my fourth year in the NBA. And that would have, anything could have happened. You know, I really could have, broken into that situation and got the playing time that I that I really wanted, that I that I was working towards, that was an opportunity, a lost opportunity. And and so I keep it as a reminder of uh, sometimes these opportunities come by and you can't let ego, emotion or even fear, you know, sometimes you gotta go for it. And uh, I did have a lot of interest, you know, in, in my own uh, defense I had quite a few teams that were interested in what I was doing and where I was going. The Houston Rockets was another team. And at that time, my mom was still living in Houston. Uh, I bought her a house in Houston there during my NBA years. And so we were both living there. I actually had an opportunity there, but it, it didn't work out. They ended up taking some other guys. And that would have been awesome then because, you know, they had to, they won two championships in a row the next two years, bro, that would have been awesome to be a part of that team. Yeah, absolutely. 
But what about your first season in the NBL here in Australia? Because it really couldn't have gone any better. You play, as you said, under Phil Smythe. You play with the likes of Brett Maher, Mark Davis, Darnell Mee, Paul Reese. You finished second, but you're still seven wins less than the Southeast Melbourne Magic, who had obviously Brian Gorgian, they had Tony Ronaldson, Mike Kelly, Parkinson, Drimmich, Dorge. You beat them 2 0 in the grand final series. But what made that team so good that you could upset the Magic and sweep them in two? Memorable victory here, and the Adelaide 36ers are the 1998 Mitsubishi Challenge champions, sweeping the Southeast Melbourne Magic in consecutive games. They win it by 28 points, 90-62. Well, I, I think now, in hindsight, looking back, it was just, it was, a, I think, a combination of chemistry we had as a, uh, and the leadership from Phil and SJ. Phil played the game at a very high level. Played it four Olympics, man. Four Olympics. You know, you got to get your head around that. I mean, this is that's every four years. That's sixteen years that he was still good enough to compete at four Olympics. So he played the point guard position, which is the most important position on the floor. They call him the general because he ran the show. So he had a great feel for players and a great feel for the pulse of players and how to talk to them. Uh, we had a lot of new pieces there with Donnell, myself, Phil was a new piece, SJ, I think Paul Reese had just got there. Uh, Mark Davis was still there, Brett Mark, Catalini, John really was, was already there. And a couple of young players and Paul Barr and Jason Williams. We came together and we just clicked, man. We just clicked. I think Donnell and I, we came there with a mindset that, look, we... Our NBA careers didn't go the way we wanted them to go. We wanted to, you know, you get to the NBA, you try to stay as long as you can there was still a chance that we could get back in the NBA. So we were thinking about playing and heading back and playing against some summer leagues to try to get back into the NBA. And it almost happened, I think, for Donnell once or twice there. But um, when we got there, our mindset was like, you know what, this is our NBA. You know, now we are starters. We get the majority of the minutes. You know, as far as we looked at it like, it's no different from us in the Denver Nuggets or the Chicago Bulls. We, we're, the, we're in the National Basketball League in Australia, so our whole approach to it, I think, was very beneficial. We didn't come in there acting like like we were hot stuff because we just came out of the NBA. So we didn't rub our teammates the wrong way. We didn't come in there trying to tell them how to play or what they need to do. We just came there and played and we competed. And we competed and we talked trash. And it just filtered through the team, which the boys already were pretty good at, at taking the piss out of each other anyway, uh, because they took it out of us as soon as we walked through the locker room. But it was so competitive. And Phil had a very positive, loose environment, and which most coaches, that's just not their style. They can't do it that way. They have to control more. Uh, Phil controlled less. He allowed us to play. He allowed us to talent the skills to come. So. We started off a bit slow, but all of a sudden, you know, we played a brand of basketball that was fun to play. And uh, we we really changed the game in regards to having four guys on the court that can shoot the three ball. We can stretch them out, take them off the dribble, penetrate, kick. And so eventually, man, we, we, we just got better and better and better. Now, the Magic with a team to be, that was tough. Brian Gordon, one of the best coaches, I think, probably in the world. but. Definitely in, in one of the best here in, in Australia, the Southern Hemisphere. And he had his boys over there 
And their philosophy was they felt like they worked harder than anybody and everybody in the league. They were in better shape. They were stronger. They were tougher. They were meaner, and they played that way. You just watched the way Brian Gorgian walked on the court, and he looked cocky as all hell. But that was his swagger, and his team had that swagger. And we couldn't beat them. Uh, we just couldn't beat them. And they were very, very confident, and they were very, very good and well-drilled. Um, but eventually, we figured them out. And it just reminds me of one of my favorite movies, The, the Matrix, when Morpheus tells Neo that when Neo says, what are you saying that I can... I can uh, he said, as, as, as long as they're agents or something, I think Morpheus says... They can never do the things that you can do. And he's like, well, what are you saying that I can stop bullets? He said, well, I'm saying you won't have to. They had a, a system. And once we figured out what that system was, then they couldn't play with us anymore. Because like those agents in Matrix, they had rules. And they'd done their rules very well. But we were out the box. We would come down on a fast break, two-on-one. Yeah, we can get the layup, we can throw the lob, but we might just pull up on the break for a three. That's just something you didn't do. And we very hard to defend. I learned that when I was with the Sydney Kings and I had to play against Adelaide. I was like, boy, you know, the way we moved the ball and the, and the things that we could do, very difficult. So once we figured out that we get a, if we got a lead on Magic, then they weren't used to playing catch-up. They couldn't come out of their system. All they could do is what they were drilled to do. So if they had to lead on you, you were in trouble. They're going to come down, chew up 18 seconds on the shot clock, dump it down, bang you or kick it out for three, and they were very good at that, but they could not play from behind. And then once we knew that, we figured it out. It was, it was tough. They were scoring twos and we were scoring threes, so they were behind, and we, we just... We just shocked them, man. When we beat them, they were just there in tears, and they didn't really know what hit them. They hadn't figured us out. Then we figured them out, and we ended up taking the title away from them because they were definitely the, the team to beat. That's an awesome insight. I've watched the 36ers documentary, and you said at, the, at that time, you didn't even know there was a grand final MVP. So when they call out Larry Sengstock medalist Kevin Brooks, did you seriously not know there was a grand final MVP? The MVP from Adelaide, Kevin Brooks. He was so spectacular in both games. KB hit the big shots. It's party time. Kevin Brooks top scored for Adelaide in game one. He did it a game in game two with 21 points. He's excited, as you might expect. Let's get a chat with him and Paul Maley. Well, Kevin, your first year in Australia, and uh, you walk away with an NBL championship. You must be feeling pretty good about that. Yeah, we're feeling real good right now. Uh, teammates, you know, the coaching staff, the doctors, we all stayed together, and uh, we pulled it out. It was a great game. Our hats off to the Magic. They were the best team in the regular season, but uh, in the playoff, we just had it all going for us. And you've got to be thinking that uh, as well as you shot the ball, you're going to be doing some celebrating yourself. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. We had a no alcohol uh, sure during the playoffs, so right now it's over with. I think we can secure the party a little bit. I had no idea. <laughs> I had absolutely no idea. So I was just there probably with, with, with a, uh, sitting up there just excited and elated and thinking about the party to come. <laughs> you know, I think I probably had a cigar in my mouth there, and we sitting up there laughing and and joking, have a good time. So when they called me, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't, uh, I had no idea. So that, I walked up to receive that 
MVP award. And that was a, a great moment for me as a professional to come from, you know, the, the NBA, yes, and I didn't get to play in time. I had some great moments. My, my, uh, I think my best year was probably my second year. Uh, and I started some games and everything, but to be in the position where you're on the team, you're starting and, and you are, are looked at for certain things, you know, uh, maybe to hit a big shot or to come through in the clutch or, you know, to be relied upon as a big part of a, of a team, you know, the same as with the other players on there. We, we all were parts of, of the whole there. And, you know, to, to get that MVP, it meant a lot for me. I think, I don't think I've told anyone this, but no, I haven't told anyone. So I got back to the lock, to the hotel with the trophy, and I just, I just sat there with the trophy in my hands in my lap, and I just cried there for a while because I think it was just a release for me from all of my professional years and from the NBA and then the expectation of that NBA. Because once you're out of the NBA, people always ask, well, what would happen? Why can't you get back in the NBA? Well, were you good enough? Well, you wasn't good. There's a lot of factors that go into that. And most of them are out of your control. Uh, but there is some that, that are in your control, you know. Uh, but I think that moment was such a special moment for me. And... Uh, it uh, it just made me appreciate that, you know, the things that I'd done and where i come from. And, you know, I went back to America there, bro. I'm going to tell you right now, it's in my mind, you know, I might as well have been an NBA champion. Because the way we, Donnell and I spoke, what we looked at is that, you know, they got to prepare all things being equal. The NBA is the best league in this country. The NBA is the best league uh, in the world, but the NBL, it was our NBA, and that was our mindset. And so to cap it off with a championship, and then for the grand final MVP for me, yeah, it was uh, it was it was quite surreal. It was quite a great moment for me. That's amazing. So you just sat there and just and just cried. I just sat there and cried. Then I had the trophy in my hand, and I just sat there and cried. I think it was just a lot of picked up stuff that I had held in there and uh, I was I was on a team that was just awesome team, awesome teammates, awesome coaching staff and we had just achieved something that I think no one really expected. The support we got from our 36 family and, and our fans was awesome. We had a, boy, a lot of people made the trip down to Melbourne that that night and uh, boy it was it was just a great moment. You know, it, it just, it felt good, it felt right, but yeah, there was a lot of the, a lot of stuff that I had released, that I had dealt with, Dan, and it just all come flooding out at that moment when I was just sitting there and I had a chance to get back to the room before I was able to, to shower and change, and, and it just was one of those, those moments, man, but it was a great moment. Unreal. The next year, 1999, you go back to back, but this time you had to do it the hard way against the Victoria Titans. Only token G being played by the Victoria Titans as the clock winds its way down on the 1999 Mitsubishi Challenge Series. And Martin Catalini, who has 19 points a game high, holds his finger in the air. Adelaide have won! 
1999 Mitsubishi Challenge Grand Final in its first summer season and only the fourth team in 21 years for back-to-back championship crowns. Congratulations to the 36ers. I've had Brett Maher on the show just recently and he says you guys were a little bit complacent after winning game one in 99. Would you agree with that? Absolutely we were because... I can't remember, you might know better than me, Dan, but we started off season one and three or two and four or something like that. Yeah, you're right. We feel tight things up on us. Because if you ever came to one of our trainings, it would kind of kind of trip you out a little bit. Because I remember some, some players watching our trainings on road trips sometime. We came to a place where it was in Melbourne or Brisbane, whatever, and we trained and... Um, they'll look at the way we started our trainings. They, they, it's just nothing like they seen because we were older team, you know, veteran experience, and Phil was just so very confident in us. Our layup line was just like <laughs> we'll come there and throw it off the backboard and twist and turn and take some crazy shot, and it, it, it looked like something you would be doing with your buddies out at the over at the at the at the Y or at outdoor court. You know, and uh, we had a looseness about us, but we had freedom in that. But when it was time to turn it on, we knew how to turn it on. So we started off a bit complacent and feels like, okay, well, he just tightened it up. He took some of those freedoms away from us. Uh, he, he tightened up as far as our, our, our warm-ups and our preparation, and we kind of felt it and we knew, okay, well, we have started off. And, and we also were adjusting to being champions, defending champions. So, you know, we may have snuck up on some people last year with so many new pieces together and a new team, but you're defending champ. You're not sneaking up on anyone. You know, you you got the bullseye squarely on your back, and you're going to get the best effort from everybody, even the worst team. When they play against you, they're going to be at their best. So it, it took us a while to get, to get used to it and learn that valuable lesson. That was an important lesson for us to learn. Referee says, fellas, take a break. It's half time. Hey, everyone. I just want to say a very big thank you to those who have engaged with A5Q. I really do appreciate all the support. I trust you're enjoying delving into all things Australian sport, and hopefully you will continue to stick around. It would be a massive help if you could please do me a solid. Subscribe to the podcast and hit me up with a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps boost my visibility and it allows the podcast to be seen by other Australian sports tragics out there. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. So after you win back-to-back, a couple of seasons later, you had a season with the Sydney Kings under Brett Brown. But one thing I really want to talk to you about because I feel like it's in NBL history... It's something that's not really spoken about all that much. I want to talk about your season with the Hunter Pirates, 2003-04, which was first season in the league, a shocking first season for the Pirates. You win two games out of 33 under Bruce Palmer and Dave Simmons. What went wrong with that season there at Hunter Pirates? Well, it was... I think it it was the first season back, right? The Pirates. Um, I was trying to get back in the league... Uh, I had uh, sustained an ankle injury back home uh, on a treadmill, actually, my home. It was 
quite embarrassing, but I ended up falling off the treadmill some kind of way and, and messing my ankle up. So I ended up having a, a bit of a, a, a wonky ankle there, but I was looking to get back in. So I came back there and I wasn't a hundred percent, but you know, I was able to still compete at a high level. The team was, I don't know much about their budget, but first year in the league, you know, they was trying to put a team there and get things going back there since Newcastle, the old Falcons went down. And that was unfortunate because they had some good teams back then. So this group of, of business people put it together and, and brought the team back. And Bruce was coaching and it. It just was very unstable. There was a animosity there and friction between the ownership group or the owners and, and Bruce coaching staff they were going back and forth and it, it wasn't what I was used to in my previous years we, we had a team that had some experience and we had some young players on the team and the problem with teams like that is you need strong leadership you got to make sure that people uh, under, have roles you assign roles they understand their roles and they carry out their roles so we had quite a few players who were playing for the job next year and they felt like they need to average this amount of points and um, they were, were trying to get their next contract or they were trying to be the man and trying to be this and that. We lost a key personnel, Brendan Mann, our point guard went down with an injury early on and that was huge because he was our leader, he was tough, he was smart, he was experienced and when he went down with the injuries and we didn't have him, I think we ended up losing him for the whole year. That was a massive blow for us. We didn't have any culture. It didn't mean anything to wear that pirate jersey. We just was a bunch of pieces thrown together to represent this new team, the Hunter Pirates. And it was the longest season of my life. We had two games, but we easily could have won eight games or so. You know, somewhere there in the middle of the season, the owner fired Bruce and Rick Castle. And they were replaced by Dave Simmons, which is Ben Simmons' dad. So I remember Ben when he was a little young kid there. And um, I think Tim, Timmy was was assistant. You know, then that Dave was first time coaching, head coach, so on that level. So he wasn't Bruce Palmer. He didn't have the experience that Bruce had. So players, we had some very tough players on that team there. We had players who needed strong leadership. So when Dan got the job, some of those players just cut loose, man. They were out every night partying and didn't take Dave seriously. And we we got even worse there, for, to be honest with you. It was, it was a tough year. It was a tough year. Uh, but when you have a new team like that, it's important that you got to establish culture and eventually you got to you get a you got to get the right pieces, the right type. Talent and skill, yes, but also the right type of character and work, and work ethic. So would you say the club that season in particular was unprofessional? I think that at times professional and at times they weren't. I think they were doing, they were, they were trying to do the right thing. Butch Hayes was a big part of that. He's a big character guy and he was awesome. One of the NBL legends, Butch Hayes, and he was a part of it. Uh, it would have been better if Butch was around us more. He was in the front office running uh trying to run the you know run the business with the owner it'd have been great if he was on the sideline with us as a coach because he has so much to offer but um i think that they were just just young and, and it was a young club first time and the owners were trying to 
try to do the right things, but you got to get the right pieces. I think firing Bruce was big. When we fired Bruce, uh, that was tough. I, I, I knew that we were in trouble there because Bruce was, was a coach that had been there and done that. He had the experience. He knew what he was doing. And the players respected him. Some of the young players respected him. And so we lost him. They got Dave. No disrespect to Dave, but Dave just didn't have the, the runs on the board as a coach. He was a championship player and a very good one. Had a great NBL career. But as a coach, some of those players didn't respect Dave. I respected him as a coach, but I was a seasoned pro. You know, I, I done what I had to do. You know what I mean? It, it was a, it was a tough year. And they, the next year they made some moves. I think they brought in a coach. Was it Adrian Hurley? Yes. Unbelievable coach. I wish I would have played for him. He was older, experienced, tough nosed, been there and done that. He brought in some new players there, and they went on and made the play playoffs that year. You know, so with uh, he came in and he righted that ship right away. He knew exactly what he did, and then they was off and gone. And it's unfortunate that they couldn't stay in longer because he done a tremendous job for him. To go from that and then make the playoffs the next season is a fair effort. It was a fair effort, but he had some new players. I think Kabasi was on there, Kabasi Franklin. Uh, he brought in quite a few new pieces there, but uh, he just righted the ship right away. I think Bruce, in fairness to Bruce, you know, he took the job, he was there, he was a very good coach, but it, it, it just was back and forth between him and the front office all the time. And, uh, it was just tough for him. I think Coach Hurley came in there, and uh, they either let him left him alone, or I think he he put him in their place. And hey, look, uh, I'm the coach. I'm going to coach the team the way I want to coach the team. So let me do my job. Uh, support me the way that we need support, and let me do my job. And, and uh, they've done that, and he done his job. Very interesting. And how about your assistant coaching career? So you had seven years under Joey Wright, two grand final series in that time. It was very well documented what sort of happened there in the last season with, with Joey Wright. It seemed like after the 2018 grand final series lost to Melbourne, things just weren't quite right both on and off the court. What was your relationship like with Joey Wright and how do you sort of sum up your seven years as an assistant coach at the Sixers? My relationship with Joy was good. You know, we, we've had our moments, uh, as most coaches do at times, head coaches, assistant coaches, because sometimes you, you disagree on things, but you have to agree to disagree because it's the big picture that matters. And also, when you're assistant coaches, the head coach's philosophy that matters. So you, you, have, you follow what they do or you don't. But we had a great run at seven years. That last grand final... Defeat was tough. It was it was it was a tough defeat. If we had Josh Children healthy, we felt like we would have won it. But we, we, we had our chances. We feel we just came out on the short end of the stick a bit. But the um, the way it ended at Adelaide, it was tough, Dan. It really was. We uh, the last two years were we missed out on the playoffs. And I think you know we made some poor decisions. We brought in some players who didn't get it done. The the, the relationships broke down. The chemistry broke down, and, you know, as coaches, it starts with you and it ends with you. So, you know, it ended up costing us our jobs. You know, we uh, we were disappointed with the, the way that some of the players played, the way that some of the players acted. And, uh, uh, you 
know, the players have their story, but at the end of the day, you get hired to do a job and you got to do your job. And if you don't do your job, then we're going to tell you about it. Uh, and if you don't do your job properly, then, you know, you take it or you decide that you're going to try to just get your money, get paid and get on the plane and get back. And with other coaches, this is a part I didn't understand because some of the players started to complain about, well, whatever, Joey said stuff to other coaches or, or he could hurt our career based upon if he say that we didn't do our Well, you should have thought about that before you start acting the way you acted. You know, if a, if a coach calls Joey or myself and they ask us what type of player you are, Dan, we're going to tell them what type of player you are. Because if we tell them that you, you're this and this and this and you're not, then guess what? They're not going to be, we're not going to have any credibility with them. And then they're going to tell their circle of coaches. And then no one's going to be contacting you for a referral on a player. So now that affects you. So you got to give coaches, if a player is not even done and he's not coachable, he's, he doesn't train hard, and he's laid off, whatever it is, then you got to say what it is. I hired you to do a job. You do your job. If you don't do your job, you can't complain. So, we just had a bad selection of players. Uh, the players didn't didn't work well together. They didn't, uh, and and we brought those players in. So, you know, we got to take the blame for that. Now, in regards to the other things that took place between Joey and the club, and you know, Kevin White and the things that were said, you know, Dan, that's very unfortunate, man. It's very unfortunate that happened. That wasn't good for the club. It wasn't good for Joy. It wasn't good for for Whitey. It wasn't good for any of us. You know, the, the, it was good for the media. They sold a lot of papers. They got a lot of ratings and reviews and stuff. But it wasn't good for us. It was and very, very ugly set of circumstances. Very ugly. Very ugly, man. People's uh, names and reputations and stuff on the line. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was there. I was a part of it. Then I wasn't a part of it. Um you know, Joey in the, in, the, in, the, in the front office, the owner in the front office, they started to butt heads. They didn't see things eye to eye any longer. And uh, they felt that it was time for Joey to move. I think that they could have been, Joey could have been sent off better than that. I think he deserved to be sent off better than that. Uh, he's had a great career here. I think he's done some very good things for the Sixers on and off the court. And so, but that's sometimes the way it's done here. I appreciate what you've done for us. You know, we had some great runs, but now we're going to go in a different direction. Uh, we're not going to renew your contract. We thank you for your, your service here. We're going to move on. I, I just don't see what's so difficult about that. Uh, but I've seen that with a lot of NBA teams and the way that they've handled players, the way they handle coaches. And, you know, I think they handled it the wrong way. And it lacks a lot of professionalism. Uh, but, uh, you know, the club has moved on now. Uh, Connor is there. He's an accomplished coach. We, I know I wish him all the best. And I wish my club the best. I'm part of the Adelaide 36ers. So no matter who owns the team now, Grant, or whoever the ownership group is now, the people there, you know, I've been part of that club longer than them. I'm still part of that club. I still support my club, the players there. And I wish them the best. But that situation there was a very ugly situation that just didn't need to happen and it didn't help anyone. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was in the news, it was in the papers every day. And yeah, it's interesting to hear, to hear you say those things. You went for the job as the, the head coach for this season. 
When Connor Henry got the job, were you ever offered a contract extension to continue as assistant coach under him? No, I wasn't. Uh, I was somewhat offered a position there in the front office to, to kind of be like a bit of a like a patron or an ambassador. But uh, I thanked him for the offer and, and declined it. Um, I, I moved over to, to my basketball business and moved forward from there. Um, Connor did not ask me to be an assistant coach. I think they wanted a, a fresh start, you know. Uh, if things would have ended differently with the 36ers, like if that incident or those incidents wouldn't have taken place, I think it would have been uh, a better opportunity. I would have had a better chance of being the next head coach. And, and what's, uh, what a lot of people don't know is that, and I've never, I've never mentioned this to, to, to anyone not on social media, that Grant Kelly pretty much promised me the job. You know, he told me, you're going to be the next head coach. And this was midway of the season. We had a team function over at, I think, Lanell Surf Club. And I thank Grant for the opportunity. I said, look, Grant, I thank you. I appreciate it. I said, I I would love the opportunity to be a head coach. Uh, but we're still in the middle of the season. We've got a long way to go. We're going to try to focus and turn the season around. Let's just wait till after the season and we'll see. Because we, we knew Joy. Joy was ready to go the last two seasons. Uh, but he had a good contract that he wasn't about to walk away from. Uh, they probably could have bought him out earlier, maybe, but he was tired. I think he was he was burned out, and the last two years were a struggle for him. Uh, I think he lost a little bit of a bit of the passion, love for the game. He was battling with with the front office a little bit. He was battling with the league, and I think he was just kind of bit over it, and you could see it a bit. So. Um, when Grant promised me that job, I said, okay, cool. And then when everything went down, uh, I'm grateful for them. They gave me the opportunity to come in there and interview, but I was never going to get the job. Uh, I, I knew that, but I still wanted to go through that process. I prepared for it, and I wanted to go through it. But I think they had already made their mind up that they was going to go a different way and that they didn't want any, any of the old people around now. The way it works, Dan, is even if they would have offered me an assistant job, I wouldn't have taken it because they were going to bring in a new head coach. And a head coach should pick his own players. His own players, I think, and his own coaches. So you shouldn't have a guy waiting there as assistant coach because it could be difficult for that coach to trust him. And trust is a big part of it. So they didn't offer me the job, but if they would have, I wouldn't have taken it because whoever the head coach was going to be, and we know now that it's Connor, Connor should be able to come in and pick his own people, uh, and, and and that's that's the way it should be. So, uh, but I, I went through the process. I was grateful for the opportunity, but I, I was never going to get that job. That opportunity was lost when all that scandal went down. I, I kind of became collateral damage there, and uh, it just wasn't going to happen. And, and, and I understand that. Dan. I mean, clean house. I say, you know what? I think we need to clean house and start fresh. And I think that's what the club done. And I, I understand that, I, I respect it. It still stings a bit because I was so close and I wanted that opportunity, but um, I'm, I'm very happy where I am now. And I'm very happy for the seven years I had with Joy, for the two years I had with Eric Cooks and the one year I had with Phil Spike, SJ. So I have 10 years as assistant coach at the NPL and uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. So. Do you have any intentions of returning to the NBL at some stage 
and would you like to one day be an NBL head coach? You know, that's a good question. I, I don't really know now. My life is, 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 is Brooks basketball now. It's skill development. It's And I enjoy what I do. I, I'm coaching a lot of juniors. And one thing we, we our motto, our USP for Brooks basketball is no kid left behind. We don't want a kid missing out because of financial reasons. And we don't want a kid missing out because they think they're not good enough because they played Division Five, Division Four, Division Three. Those are most of the kids in my program, and we want to help kids get better and enjoy the game. I still coach Division One players, state players, and things of that nature, uh, semi-professionals, ABA players, but uh, we we don't want kids missing out. So I think that uh, it has to be the right opportunity because now I'm back home. My wife, I got two young boys, six and three, and uh, not traveling and everything, and being away from them so much has actually been quite refreshing. Uh, it's, it's been good being home more often, and also during that time of being home, we're building the brand. You know, you build a brand, you build a business, so that's been very good for us. Uh, my wife and I talked about what if an opportunity came about. Well. I mean, even before COVID, it would have to be a pretty good opportunity then, you know. You know, two, three-year deal, or, you know, I don't even know if I would have went anywhere for an assistant job. It would have probably had to be a head coaching job, and I, I would need to get three years regardless because if you're taking over a job that first year, you're trying to see what's there and either establish the culture or rebuild the culture. Uh, there's players there that you didn't bring in, and so you got to, evaluate those players the second year you're going to probably bring in a few pieces of the players that better fit your style and your philosophy gives you another year to establish your coaching staff and your culture and your foundation and then by that third year you, you should have that in place a little bit and really be able to go out there and maybe contend for a final position you know depending on a few other different factors so it would have to be a three-year deal uh, for us to even consider it. So, right now, uh, could I be an NBO assistant coach or head coach again? Yes, I could, but it would have to be a pretty good opportunity to take me away from my family and, and what we have going on now. Hey guys, it's it's just me again. <laughs> Yeah, that was awkward. Anyway, it's three-quarter time here on A5Q and a teaser trailer of another guest I've had on the show I had the pleasure of sitting down and having a chat with an NBL original in Cal Bruton. Yes, of course, Cal Bruton played many years in the league and, of course, was the first ever championship coach of the Perth Wildcats. Now, this guy is fantastic to listen to. He has a really good story, and I can't wait to unveil the full episode. But until then, let's just give you guys a little bit of a snippet of it. That was probably the worst nightmare of my life. Um, you know, i got to take you back to 2000, you know, where... Well, I was asked to come in, and they were one and eleven. And uh, and Herb McEachin had gave me a call, and of course Herb and I were the first two Black Americans to play in the NBL. We've been best buddies ever since, and uh, and so he called me and said, "Yo, man, we're gonna need some help, and we think you're the guy that can do it. Would you be prepared to come down for three months and, and see if we can turn this thing around? Because we we in financial trouble, but we also got a good team, and we think we can." do better than what we're doing so I accepted uh, Senator Peter Cook who was the Western Australia 
state senator and he was also the deputy leader of the opposition, offered me a opportunity to stay at his home. Now, trust me when I say this is one episode you are definitely going to want to tune into. Uh, Cal Bruton is fantastic to listen to. He's a funny guy and he's got a really, really good story. So definitely stay tuned for that episode, which will drop pretty soon. But until then, let's get back to KB. And KB, just as we are about to, to close up now, I've got, well, I've got three last questions for you. In fact, actually for you, I've got four questions and I always ask these questions in one sentence. Who is, in your entire career, in any league you've played, any country, who is the best player you ever played with and why? Who is the best player you ever played against and why? Who's the best coach you ever played under and why? And for you, I'll add in a fourth one. Who is the best player you ever coached and why? best player I've played with is is my former teammate, Nuggets teammate, and Sixer teammate, Dondell B. Now, don't get me wrong, there's there's some players on that NBA team, I think, at that time, that were definitely better than Dondell. You know, Chris Jackson and Robert Pack, probably with it. They were were ahead of him because he was still very young then and and learning the game. Reggie Bryce did as a two-guard. But... Overall, pound for pound, man, I've learned so much from Donnell as a player, uh, where it's, it's, it's probably just as much as what I learned from my coaches and the different coaches. His basketball IQ is just off the charts, and we spent so many days after training playing PlayStation, NBA PlayStation. We wouldn't play the actual game, Dan. We would, we rarely done that because I wasn't much competition. I was terrible with those controllers and at the game. We played the... Uh, the part where you were the general manager, where we would draft players and we'll put together a team. And then we'll simulate the teams with each other, going up against each other. Whenever we came up against each other, we would watch that stop it and watch that game. And then we'll make changes throughout the season where we'll trade. And we will spend hours on that game and just talking basketball and about different players and coaches and different systems and philosophies. But just playing the game and drafting the players to find players that that, that could do it all. It just taught us so much about these players and about the game. We learned so much about uh, each other. and So he, he would be the guy and, and, and the reason why. We're still very, very close friends. He's my best man at my wedding. And, He's back in America now, helping guide his son uh, through college. And his son is a very good player, Mikhail. And, and we think he's going to have a shot, you know, if he continues to stay healthy and work on his game. He can have a shot at being a pro, whether that's NBA or here in Australia, because he was born here. So I think he actually is a citizen here. Or in Europe, he's going to he's gonna have some options, man. He's got Donnell's big, uh, build, lean, long arms, big hands, and... I actually think he's a better shooter than Donnell. Donnell was a, a better shooter than people know, but Mikhail shoots the ball pretty well. But he, he would be the, the best player I've played with. In the NBA, I mean, man, what can I say? <laughs> you know, Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen, uh, I got some playing time against these guys. Uh, you know, uh, the Glove and Rain Man, you know, Gary Payton, Sean Kent, we saw so much of them, Kendall Gill. Barkley was there, one of the funniest guys in the league. He talked so much smack, uh, but he was he was a he was a laugh to watch him. Uh, you know, Starks and Patrick Ewing with the dicks and 
you know, you got your, your your all-star superstar players, and then you had your all-stars, and then you had those players, role players, who were very good. They kind of slipped under the the radar. Derek Harper, point guard for the Dallas Mavericks, a long time. Because Stockton and Magic were in the West, he didn't make as nearly all uh, as many all-star games as he should have, if any. But he was a top-notch player, man. Uh, you know, so right off the bat, uh, you know, you, you got to go with. Jordan, because he's, he's considered by many the, the greatest ever. And, um, you know, as far as in the, in, in the NBL, uh, back when we played, there was some tough players. You know, Leroy was still there, but he was on the other end of his career. Uh, Steve Woodbury was tough. You know, Lenard Copeland was tough. Andrew Gaines was tough. Uh, boy, I tell you, I miss those days. It was so competitive. We had a lot more teams back then. Rob Rose, Derek Rucker, you know, uh, Ronaldson was tough. Drimmick, young Drimmick came along. He was a good young player, uh, Frankie. And, um, you know, Glenn Savile. Sav was a tough player. You know, Vlahov was tough because he was so physical and he, he, he just beat you up all over, all over the doggone court. Uh, it, it was just so many, so many good players there. Uh, but if we're going overall, then we got to go. The, the few times I've been on the court with Michael and Scotty, then you, you, you know, you play with against the greatest, and it's got to be him, right? Played against Michael Jordan. Played against Michael, man. He, you know, he he just made it look easy, and the, and the, and the good ones do that, and the great ones really do it. He, he made it look easy. He didn't take plays off. He was wired differently. You know, him and Kobe are like a cut of the same fabric. A lot of people like to compare LeBron to him, but LeBron is is not cut of the same fabric. His fabric is more like a Magic Johnson, you know, but he's much better. He, he, he developed into a much better sport than Magic. And you look at what LeBron's doing right now, man. It's just, I'm just grateful to be alive, to be able to see someone with that God-given ability and talent to be able to compete every single night on the level that he's doing it right in front of our eyes, man. It's it's unbelievable what he's doing. Did you ever have any dialogue with Michael Jordan? No, I, I, I didn't. Uh, I never had a chance to talk to him because at that time I would have been too scared shitless to do that. <laughs> uh, Understandable. There's no way that I would have approached him to say anything. You know, I had a little bit of dialogue with Scottie Pippen and uh, with a, a few other players, uh, around the league, outside of my age level, more the, more the veteran players, the older players, and some of the superstars. Uh, met some, some people, uh, which I was just so nervous and, and giddy about. But uh, Michael, no, man, you know, he was just like a, a basketball god or something, you know. He, being young like that, you know, you... You were just too intimidated to speak to him and a lot of other players like that, you know, because they were so revered to a certain degree. Uh, so I never really had any dialogue with him. But some, but it was it was it was a lot of good guys. I know people see NBA guys. And, and I'm not there now, but you know, you come across and arrogant and cocky. And yeah, you got some guys like that, but for the most part, you got some good guys out there. Best coach that I played for. It's no really one coach for me. I think um, I think it's uh, quite a few coaches who have been instrumental. 
in my development. You know, I, I, I was a pro for 13 years, three years in the NBA, and 10 years overseas between, you know, uh, Europe, South America, and over here in the Southern Hemisphere in Australia. And uh, it'd probably be easier for me to maybe break it down, you know. Um, high school, it was, it was Coach Bush, John Bush. Um, he was he was tough. He was fair. He was good. I mean, I got my butt kicked off the team probably one or two times, but I got my act together. He just wasn't having it, man. So he was big on that discipline side. In college, um, and I know this is a little bit different than what you asked, but I got to break it down like this for me because in college, my college coach, Coach Marty Fletcher, uh, gave me a full scholarship, uh, believed in me. I was able to play. I went to a place where I could play. He gave me that opportunity. He was instrumental in that. Um, another coach on that team, Dan, the assistant coach, Coach Pierre, I want to give him a mention because they, they worked together. They were staff. Coach Pierre really helped me in regards to being a man and the real character issues and work ethic and being a good human being. Um, he was instrumental also in me being being a black man because he was, he was African-American as well and he educated me on, on the basketball court, but I think more so off the court is, is what I got from him. We still close to this day. He's, he's, a, he's a head coach now at the junior college in Florida, one of the top colleges in America. As far as college goes, those two guys now, you know, Roy Williams, was, he's a Hall of Fame. If he's not there, he will be. He coached me very shortly in a postseason camp before I got drafted to the NBA. He's probably the most high-profile guy. Um, and he was he was pretty cool for the three four days we were there. You can tell that he knew his stuff, man. He knew it well. He's still coaching. He's coaching Tar Heels now. Um, in the pros, you know, no disrespect. I had Paul West said pros, Daniels on the pros, but for me, as a pro, uh, that would be Phil Smite hands down. You know, Phil don't always get the credit he deserves because. He had a couple of ex-NBA guys, former NBA guys on his squad, but we still need to be coached when he coaches. And um, uh, Donnell and myself and, and the rest of the boys, uh, Mozzie and Catalina, Mark Davis, Paul Reesap, all those guys, he still had the coaches. And so he done an unbelievable job. I learned uh, probably the most from him in regards to being a coach. I think our philosophies are very similar um, and feel was the type of guy he let you play. So whatever your talents were, they were going to be able to show. He gave you the freedom and the room to play. Now, there were some, you know, there were some restrictions. I shouldn't say restrictions. There was some structure. But, um, you know, the guy played for Olympics, so he knew the game inside out. He allowed us to play. And, and he was, uh, uh, as a professional coach, he, he was a guy for me. So I, I hope that <laughs> that answers your question. It's a big, long and drawn out but there, there wasn't any one coach for me. I, I, I'm very fortunate to play Dan 13 years as a pro, but it wasn't me. I wasn't that good. I had good coaching all along the way. I had good coaching, and I'm and I'm very grateful to those uh, to those guys for it. In regards to the second part of that, players that I've coached, uh, as far as assistant coach, you know, my time there with the Sixers, I think Willie Farley was on that team. Of course, Brett Maher. Uh, you know, my time in Newcastle, we had Matty Campbell, we had South, and then uh, obviously the seven-year run here. When it comes to just talent, man, uh, 
Jerome Randall was an absolute talent, talent man. Uh, the things that Rome could do as a point guard, the things he could do with the ball, his ability to score. Uh, he, he was one of the toughest players that I've coached. Uh, and I mean like when I've actually got to the level when I was actually doing some coaching, not just starting off. Rome was tough. Uh, out of the guards we brought in, and we've had some talented guards, Shannon Shorter. We really miss Shannon. He was a great guy. Wilson, uh, we brought him in. He was a talented guard, but Jerome probably was the most talented guard. Uh, as far as big guys go, you know, I'm kind of breaking it down into positions, but it's tough to pick just one player. Uh, but Daniel Johnson is an unbelievable, talented, committed player. So underrated. DJ is underrated. You know, DJ is a little bit a bit different. He's, uh, you know, you have to establish. He, he doesn't trust very easily, so you have to establish a relationship with him. And and uh, once you do that, and, and once he, he kind of understands what type of person you are and what type of coach you are, he's, he'll open up to you. But he, he won't just do that initially. You got to put in some work with him. But he's a, he's a good guy and he's an unbelievable talent. Uh, you look at the numbers he's putting up, the things that he's doing. I love to see him win a championship because I think at the end of the day, you know, you all, you all, we always judged on that. Uh, you know, if we were able to win championships, and I, I hope that he can get one before his career is over. He still got some good, some good years, man. Um, I thought that, uh, oh, man, you know. I've coached a few players there over the years here with Joey in seven years. Has been Eric Griffin was an unbelievable talented player, but he was hard to deal with. He was tough. Uh, you know, Ramon Moore, great guy, great talent as well. You know, uh, it's just, it's so many there. It's just so many there, Dan. Uh, missing a lot of players. I'm trying to think about the year. Josh Childress. Now, Josh Childress, um, he would he would have to be the player. He would be definitely over Jerome Randall as far as the best player I coached because I mean look at the, the his pedigree, you know, not only NBA but Europe and Josh is, is there and really probably right behind Josh would be Mitch Creek and Mitch Creek would be in, in my opinion above Jerome as well, you know. Uh, as far as complete players. Jerome talent wise he's up there with any of them, but complete players. It would have to be Josh and Creaky at a really close second, man. Creaky was an absolute joy to coach. Totally devastated when we lost him. Uh, it still gives me nightmares. Whether I'm a part of the club or not, Mitch Creek should still be in a 36 uniform. He should still be playing right now. And that's where he wanted to be. And it's unfortunate that that situation got messed up the way it did. Because it still hurts Creaky to this day uh, that he's not a 36 uh, if he's going to the NBA, then great. We, we, yeah, we disappointed to lose him, but you're going to the best league in the world. Then we we there supporting him and pulling for him the whole way. I'm actually surprised Creaky didn't make it. I think that if he would have got to the right place, you know, and so much is just timing, being in the right place at the right time. You look at Deladova. Deladova probably wouldn't make a majority of the NBA teams, but he went to the right team, and his his talent and skill set. And a lot of it, and his character and work ethic fit that team. 
LeBron speaks very highly of it because he's like, look, the guy don't make a lot of mistakes. He hits the shot. He makes the right plays, the right decision. And, you know, he's a solid ball player. And he fits in well with what we're doing. LeBron spoke very well with Teledova. Look at him. You know, he's he's an over he's an overachiever, man. You know, he, he really is. So it was, um, man, that was, a, that was a tougher, man, what, what happened there. And, but, you know, we, 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 if he, when he came back to L.A., or when he came back to Australia, then we wanted him to make, to make sure he was coming back to be a 36. So to see him in those other uniforms, man, it, yeah, it's, it, it, it pains me to see him in those other uniforms. Do you think that he could ever come back to the 36s? Well, I tell you what, man, if, if, if I was, uh, if I had become the head coach, then that was what I was working on. I was actually working on that beforehand. Uh, because I had spoken with, with Creaky in private, and I told him, I said, look, I don't know if I'm going to get this job, but if I do, I'm coming for you. And I don't care what kind of contract you have or what you need, you just give me the number, and we'll make it happen. Now, at that time, him and the owner had, had a bit of bad blood between them two, so that I still would have had to try to get that through the owner, but Creaky was open to it. He said, look, I got another year on my contract, but after that, you know, I, I would be open to it, but I would have to sort some things out with, with Grant first before it could happen. I was like, look, you just let me take care of that. And, and if I, I, obviously I don't have the job, but if I get it, I want you back. And that's going to be priority. That's going to be the first move that I, that I can, that I can make out, you know, that first year, he still had a contract with Southeast Melbourne, but I would have been planning for that the next year. Because uh, you lose a guy like Creaky as an Australian player, you know, that move, I think, has set us back the years already that we, we, we've had without it in probably the next five years or so before another player can come along, Australian talent like that. That set us back a decade when we lost him, right off the bat, 10 years. Now, yeah, someone could come along sooner, you'd be pretty damn lucky to get him sooner. So right there, you, you're in a 10-year deficit of losing a player of his character and his caliber and his talent and his passion for the game and his love for Adelaide. We're still recovering from that. What what actually happened? was up for a contract. And so I know, all I, I know is that he was up for a contract and he was told that he was going to be priority. We're going to get your deal done. We want you here for a long time. We want you for years to stay. So Creek was okay, cool. Then when the season ended, we we signed other players. I think we gave Ramon Moore a two-year deal and we gave somebody else a two-year deal. We signed all these other people and then when it came time to sign Creaky, all of a sudden we didn't have enough money or we didn't have the money that Creaky wanted. And Creaky's like, hold on, you've been telling me the whole time that I'm priority, that you're going to first time, you sign all these other guys, and now it's my turn to sign. You're saying you, you don't have enough money, and that just that just pissed Creaky off right away. That put him off sides right away. I think that was the beginning of it, and I think it just kind of, it's kind of deepened from then. Uh, I think Creaky, um, has a right to be pissed off. I know we signed some other players, uh, but how we don't take care of Creaky first, 
I don't know. I wasn't involved in the contracts. Joey done all of that stuff. And then on the last year or two, a year or two, I think him and the, and the general manager and the owner might have been a little bit more involved together in the signing of players. But I wasn't involved with that, um, that process. So I was just as flabbergasted, probably as crazy or anyone else. Because right? I'm like, I'm sitting there like, okay, well, how the hell you don't sign Creepy back? You know, and, and then all of a sudden when it's time to sign it back, you don't have enough money. Now, this is just one side of the story. This is what I've, I've kind of heard from Creaky and how he, he was upset about it. And he felt a bit, you know, betrayed about it when you tell him, the, you know, you tell him you're going you're to do certain things and then you don't do it. And a player of his caliber, I still don't understand. Well, I don't understand what happened. And, and if you don't have the money, then go find the money. But don't let him go somewhere else. He comes back to kick our ass. Yeah, that's part of it. But the thing is that we lose him, and it puts us in the hole for 10 years. So I still don't fully know what took place more than it was a massive screw-up. Massive screw-up. They sent him back. They sent us back big time. And, and it's continuing to sell us back. Can you imagine Creaky on the team for the last, I don't know, a few years? You got something to build around. You got a guy who's a leader. He's going to say, he's, he's, he's going to lead the team and he's going to say the, the, the good things. He's going to say the tough things. He's going to say the things that need to be said. He's a leader on the court and in the locker room. And he was the face of the team. We hadn't really had a face of the team since, since Brett Maher. And that was creaky. You know, DJ has been with the club a long time, but that's not really DJ style. DJ is very, uh, to himself and, and can be a little bit aloof at times, but that's not bad. That's just DJ who he is, and we accept that. But the face of the team, the guy out there in the media who enjoyed all that, because DJ doesn't enjoy all that stuff, that was that was creaky. That was the face of our club, and it was a face that uh, that we could build around. He was very well liked and very well received here in the community. And, um, we lost a lot that day. It was a real shame when he left because, I mean, you know, he was so, he's, he's a great player and you see what he's doing now at South East Melbourne. He is the face of that club and he is one of the reasons why, even in their second season, they are championship contenders. Yeah, that's right, man. Look, Cricket is one of those players where they don't come around too often and break the mold. If you go back in that great run of the Breakers and the Wildcats going tit for tat one of the others winning the championships probably over I don't know four to six year stretch you know there's two names that come about and there was Micah Bacona for the Breakers and Kurt Wildcat Damien Martin uh, I think Gibbo Adam Gibson I think he possessed that ability uh, for for quite a few years and then you know Creaky scores more points than all of those guys but he also possessed that ability and it's a the ability to, to have a person who's a leader and they they do all the, all the little things uh, they can lead by example first and foremost and that's the most important one is lead by example and then if they also can can lead by uh communicate and, and, and be able to 
able to speak to players and be able to relate to players and different players with different personalities and different egos. But the main thing is they can say the tough things when players not getting it done. They can say it and then those players can accept that from that player. Sometimes they can't accept it from certain players or even certain coaches. But, you know, it's, it's Rico Vacona, we know he, he's tough as it comes. And you're sitting in that locker room, if you ain't doing what you need to be doing because you're thinking about yourself and you got your head up your butt, Mick is going to get you sorted out real quick. All right? Otherwise, you're going to be in that fight. And uh, he's not a really guy that you you, you probably want to be fighting. So uh, Damian Martin didn't have the physique and didn't have the, the presence that Mick had, but he was tough in your face. And he was a guy who didn't have the natural talent of a lot of guys. He just worked his ass off. And he earned the respect of his players and his community, his club. Uh, Gibbo, I think, was there for a few years. And I think it got away from Gibbo. I think it, it got away from him. I think he got caught up in some other things. But for a time, I think he had the capacity to be a player like that. And I think he'd done some of that for a short period of time and it got away from him. But Creaky was... He grew into that. He he was with us here. He is now that player. So you can build pieces around him, man. So it, and, and, and it's almost like having a franchise player. That terminology is used in the NBA more. You know, you got your superstars, your all-stars, your role players. So it's not used uh, a lot here in Australia and not the NBA, but that's exactly what Creaky is. He's a franchise player. He's a player that can play the one, the two, the three, the four, and even can play some five in limited, uh, limited times possessions because he's so strong, he gets low to the ground, he know how to defend bigger, taller, stronger people. He can play every position on the court. Now, that's just added to it. Even if he can't do that, which he can, he's still a franchise player in this league. So, you know, that's that is a massive loss, man. Yeah, when you when you say it like that, it really does make you you realize what a loss he was. Oh man, if you, if you don't realize it, then you you will over the years because um, it definitely should should be there. And uh, you know, you you have a player that's not a team in the in the, in the, in the competition that wouldn't take him. No, you're not right a there. Team wouldn't take him. Hundred percent. Well, KB, it's been an awesome chat, man. I really appreciate your honesty and going into your career and your life in general. I respect you very highly and I wish you all the very best with everything you're doing now with your business and it's been a pleasure to have you on the show today. Yeah, Dan, look, thank you, bro. I really appreciate your patience, man. I think we've been we've been trying to make this connection for like over a month. Uh, <laughs> so good. I, I really appreciate your patience, man, and... Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed it. And if you ever need anything from me, man, just give me a buzz. There it is. It's all over. And that's a wrap. Thank you to everyone for tuning into A5Q. Don't forget to spread the word, subscribe, leave a rating. Until next time, old sport.